uh, I haven't always been a pastor. I did so well in college that they invited me to leave. <laughs> and after that, I went into the Army, and I was at Fort Bragg doing all kinds of crazy stuff um, to the point that guys who I still keep in touch with from the Army, like, I can't believe that you're a pastor. I want to tell you one thing that gripped my heart. It was in the darkest days when I was running from God as fast as I could. It was the scripture verses that my mother had sat down and made me memorize every summer that grabbed my heart. And it was the word that was implanted um, along with a lot of people's prayers. I really believe that restored me to the Lord. So I commend you for memorizing Scripture. Um, it's a good thing. Uh, I want you to know one other thing uh, before we preach. Um, I love your pastor. Um, I'm so thankful to God um, that Aaron leads this church. He and I um, share much of the same life situation in that my wife as well is disabled and on Medicare. Um, but to watch the way that Aaron deals with um, what God has put on his plate, he loves um, Thomas and Amy. Um, he preaches to me, okay? I'm jealous of him. I want you to know that. He's got more hair on one cheek than I do on my whole head. But um, listen, he's, he's a warrior, he really is. He's a quiet warrior for God's kingdom. And um, this church is in a very good place um, with the pastors pastors that you have here. Um, and it's a pleasure to join my voice with his and the other pastors today, um, calling it one voice. So, um, I don't know what's going on with this. Uh, there we go. Now we're back. Is it me? You don't know. Okay. All right. You know what? I, I promise you, I don't need it if you want. I'll just up the volume. So anyways, let's pray and then we'll, we'll look at our text this morning. Lord, thanks for the opportunity to be here and worship together. Thank you for the Christian Church of Estes Park and for what you're doing in this congregation and through this congregation. I pray today, Lord, not only here, but in all of our evangelical churches, as your word is preached and people are challenged, Lord, when we leave this place today, as we always pray, we don't want to say that we just went to church. We want our confession to be that we were in the presence of the living God. So to that end, um, preacher and hearer alike, we surrender to you. We want to hear your voice this morning and be challenged. We commit our time to you and ask that we would worship you now through the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said amen. amen. I, love, um, I love William Booth. He's the founder of the Salvation Army. I love him because he, he had a little bit of an edge to himself. Uh, he wanted to try to do church a little differently than everybody else did. One time when he was beginning his ministry of the Salvation Army, he took his son Bramel, who his nickname was Willie, and he took him down into London um, to where, where the pubs were. It wasn't a place 
in, in those days where church people would hang out. But he took his son down there, and they went into this pub. And in those days, people who were in the pubs were pickpockets, thieves, um, women who were selling themselves. It wasn't the, ch- the normal church crowd that young Willie was used to seeing. And they walked in there, and Willie looked at his dad, and he asked this question, Who are these people? You ever ask that question? Yeah. I, I've asked it a few times lately. We were back in Washington, D.C., I forgot what it was like to drive in urban environments. And I'm saying, who are these people? Um, and, and then when we were walking in, in D.C., you know, in, in America, this way and this way. If you come from another culture, sidewalk, traffic rules, who are these people? It's usually not asked in a very positive Light. You know, Jesus got asked that question. If you remember, he called Matthew or Levi to be one of his disciples. And Levi was so psyched about that that he threw a party and had Jesus come. And there were people who hung out with tax collectors at the party. And do you remember what the Pharisees said to Jesus? Who are these people? How would, you, how would you answer that question when you look at Estes Park? Who are these people? I think the church has to have an answer. And I love the answer that William Booth gave to his son. Who are these people, Dad? This is what he said. Willie, these are our people. These are our people. I love that answer. And I love it because it's an answer that tells me that there's a deep conviction in William Booth's soul. And there needs to be a deep conviction in our soul that you and I, as the people of God, have been placed here to make a difference in the community. The the, the greatest sermon that was ever preached was the Sermon on the Mount. It's the greatest sermon because it was preached by a perfect preacher who never made an error. And the very first thing that Jesus launches into in the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes, which, you know, uh, the euphemism is those are the attitudes that you and I are to be. But then the very next thing that he talks about is how you and I are to live our, our lives out, our faith. I'd like you to turn to Matthew 5 this morning and let's read because this is a significant priority in God's kingdom. Matthew chapter 5. And let's begin reading at verse 13. You were the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. 
There's two words that we want to fixate on this morning, salt and light. And I want to say this right off the bat. This is not what we are to do. It's what we are. You are salt. We are salt. We are light. So what is Jesus getting at? I've, I, I grew up in church. I bailed on church. I came back to the Lord. I, I often hear this when we talk about this issue of salt, that Jesus is talking about flavor or he's talking about preservation because salt was used as such. But I think he's getting it far more than just that. Salt is huge in the Old Testament. Let me just share with you some of the things that we read about salt in the Old Testament. Job chapter 6 and verse 6, it talks about salt that seasons food. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 24, it talks about salt being mixed with cattle fodder in order to make it tasty. And then it's tasty when you slaughter the beef and you eat good good chow. Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 13, meat offerings. It's talking about the sacrificial system, but meat offerings were seasoned with salt. Ezra chapter 4 and verse 14, it's a narrative, but we read these words, that we have shared the salt of the palace. We've shared the salt of the palace. To eat salt with someone, that was hospitality, and you were deriving your sustenance from somebody else, and therefore, as such, you were bound to look after their interests. Numbers, chapter 18 and verse 19, as well as Second Chronicles, chapter 13, verse 5, we read these words that talk about a covenant of salt. A covenant of salt. It was a covenant of perpetual obligation between the two parties. Ezekiel, chapter 16 and verse 4, we read in that text there was this notion that children, when they were first born, their parents would take them. And I don't, we don't know exactly how all it worked out. I don't think they did it over their whole body because it would be dangerous. But there was salt that was taken by the parents and rubbed on their children. And again, it was a sign that the parents were obligated to the child. So when you think about those things, there's four things that are huge in the Old Testament that I think Jesus is getting at here. And and please remember this. I think sometimes we have this notion that when Jesus was speaking to the crowds that they were just these uninformed, dumb people. They They weren't. I mean, even the disciples, we understand, had a pretty good knowledge of the Old Testament. We see that when they start to write in the New Testament. And so... When they're hearing salt, I think they're understanding exactly what we just went over. In light of those verses, there's four things about salt that I believe Jesus is getting at with his listeners. Number one, as salt, we season lives. Number two, we're to live sacrificially because salt is involved with sacrifice. Number three, because of salt, you and I are to look after God's interests. And number four, 
We're to be perpetually in his service. It's far more than just a little bit of flavor or or some sense of preservation. There's obligation that exists in this text. Yes, we're to season lives, but we're called on to live sacrificially. We're called on to look after God's interests, his priorities. And fourthly, we're to be perpetually in his service. And then Jesus says something about this. He says, if the salt loses its flavor or becomes tasteless, how will it be made salty again? So he talks about losing this sense of saltiness. It's written in the original language that if it is if salt is made to lose its saltiness, it's it's passive. Listen, I um, I took high school chemistry at least twice. And I'm not real good with the periodic elements. I know that salt is N.A.C.L., I believe, sodium chloride. But this is. What I've learned that sodium has to be joined to something. That's the the molecular structure, and that's about as far as I can go in science. Okay? So saltiness, listen, we don't lose our saltiness because God bails on us. The issue of saltiness and losing saltiness is what we allow to be joined to us, i.e., what influences us more than what we're influencing. And we're called here to not lose our saltiness because bad salt in this context was used for roads, it was used for roofs, and it was used as a hardening agent. Now listen, that makes me stand up and And be very careful. Because that tells me that if I become bad salt, I can actually be an influence that hardens people more than seasons people. There's another word that Jesus uses in the text, and it's the issue of light. And again, it says that we are the light of the world. So the question is not, will we be light? But rather, what type of light are we? I I parked up here this morning when I came in because it said visitors, and I qualify. Okay? But then the second thing is it said elderly, and I'm going to be 55 on Tuesday. Okay? So you can meet me at McDonald's for senior coffee. I I grew up in the 70s. So if you're here and you're my age, you will understand this phrase, black light. You ever have black light posters? Yeah. It's It's not the kind of light Jesus wants us to be. The issue isn't are we light, it's what type of light are we going to be. And we're called by Jesus in this text to be an illuminating force on the earth. What does illumination do? Illumination warns us of danger, and illumination provides guidance. And it says that the light is of no value if it is kept 
hidden under a peck measure, or it is kept secret. And so the analogy analogy that Jesus uses is one that they would all get in this text. It's the analogy of a one-room house, which is the way that people would live. And there would be a single light stand that gave light or illuminated the whole house. There's a singularity that's in the text, a light, a singular light. So the thing he finishes with is this, that salt and light are evangelistic. Living as salt and light are evangelistic. I want to be very careful about this. Please hear me this morning. Our works cannot convert people. Our works cannot convert people. But our works can point us, or or our works can point people to the Christ who can convert them. Our works will never save anyone, will never transform a life. But the way that we live our lives in front of people will point people to Jesus, who is the one who can convert. So, here's the question. How do we do it? How do we do it? (laughs) And the first thing is this. It's not so much what we do, it's remembering who we are. I really believe, I believe that with all my heart. I want to say this to you this morning, and I'm, I'm preaching this sermon to all the different churches, okay? Church isn't what we do, it's who we are. We, we have to grasp that in our identity. We are not, the, you are not, the Christian Church of Estes Park, because you worship. You worship because you are part of the church. It's who we are. And we don't just click off the, the church thing when we walk out the door and, and get back on the highway. You and it, it's who we are. Perpetual obligation. We have been called to be salt and light. Secondly, we are to have a singular goal in making a difference in the community. Jesus uses an interesting phrase here to describe his people, to describe me, to describe you. And he says this, we are the light of the world. What does he say later in John chapter 8 and verse 12? I am the light of the world. Why are you the light of the world if you're a believer? Why am I the light of the world? I never Listen, I've, I've read the scriptures through. I never once in here read how Irvine is the light of the world. Why are we the light of the world? Because the light of the world dwells in us. Therefore, here's where I'm going. You and I are to reflect Jesus. He lives in us. We're to be Jesus to others. But we have a singular goal when we're in touch with the community. And it is this. It is to bring 
people to the point where they confess Jesus as Lord. I would challenge you to read a book called Unchristian. It's about five or eight years old. It was writ- it's written by the man who took over the Barna group because Barna has kind of backed off towards retirement. And it is the unbelievable. They did a huge survey, both in paper and personal interviews. And what they were doing is they were garnering the unbelieving world's perspective of the evangelical church. And listen, this doesn't feel good, but we all need to hear this this morning. The unbelieving people really believe this, that the goal of the evangelical church is to turn everybody into white, middle-class, conservative Republicans that don't like gays, don't like abortion, and love tax cuts. That's the message that they think we're selling. That's not our message. Our message is not our message is not moralistic. It is not therapeutic. It is not deistic. We have a singular message and a singular goal. It's to preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And to bring people to the point where they confess Christ as Lord. And that means something. That means acknowledging that he's God in the flesh. That means acknowledging that he's the only one who can forgive us of our sin. It means that he and he alone is the changer of our hearts. This whole one voice initiative has a singular goal. It's heart change in the community. And I very much appreciate what the school district is trying to do and the stuff that our kids have been through over this last year. But they can't talk to the heart. The church talks to the heart because we're in relationship with the one who can change hearts. So we have to have a singular message. Thirdly, this impacting the community is about passion, not programming. It's about passion, not programming. I told you that we went back to, to D.C., over Christmas, and uh, I, I love history, okay? In fact, I'll tell you my passion. Anybody here in 4-H club in high school? Okay. I'm in 4-H club for grown-ups. I love history. I like hockey. I own a Harley, and I like handguns. When we were in D.C., it's, it's incredible because you see these tributes to the founding fathers, and they were absolutely given to the passion of limited government. But then what happened is somebody said, we can make the passion of limited government better by creating programs to sustain it. And so here's the capital, and here's this tribute to limited government, and you literally step across kitty corner from the capital, and there's this huge building called the IRS. And then down from there, it's the Department of, Department of, Department of. And when we're talking about in, in, impacting the community, I think sometimes, and, and I, I don't want to get the engineers or the organizational people upset, but sometimes we can program ourselves into oblivion. 
And the real issue is to pursue the passions that God has given to us and how he's created us. And in doing so, impact people for the kingdom of God. The memory verse, which I memorized in King James a hundred years ago. Okay, but listen, therefore, go and make disciples, right? The text literally says, as you go, be a disciple maker. As you go. The way that you're wired. There are some of you in here, you're wired and and you enjoy coaching. Then coach people. And as you coach, make a difference. As God gives opportunity, bring Jesus into the context. Listen, the, the school is clamoring for tutors and for mentors. Some of us have a passion to do that this morning. And as we do, and as we start to make relationship with kids or with other people, salt and light, it's who we are. Bring Jesus into the context. We have a very significant election facing us in this community. There's places on the town board that are up for election, and it's my understanding that a new mayor is going to be elected. Wouldn't it be incredible if one of God's people said, this is the way that I can serve? And to serve and to bring Jesus into the context. Um, Listen, I, I don't enjoy going to meetings. I have enough as a pastor. I don't enjoy extra meetings. I don't enjoy extra nights out. But there's one reason... And one reason alone that I work with the fire department as a chaplain is because I don't ever want to lose touch with unbelieving people. And I I want to be in an environment where I can bring Jesus into the context. I'm not there to preach. I'm there to what the brother was talking about at communion, to love and to serve and to bond. And God does in his providence give us those opportunities where we can be Jesus to other people. I want to challenge you with this, too. I'm thankful for it in my congregation here. I'm very grateful for it in Montana before we came here. But I serve in congregations where they bless staff hours that are outside of here and connecting with unbelieving people. They don't consider that just extra stuff. They bless that. Because it makes a difference in the community. Here's another thing that I think needs to be derived from this text. Holiness is separation from sin, not sinners. I grew up in a circle of churches where our holiness was... We, we, we judged how holy we were by how far we could get from unbelieving people. I, I'm very serious. I really am. But here's the problem with that. When you do that and you don't feel holy enough, then what do you do? <laughs> here's what we did. We started to separate from Christians that we didn't think were separate enough. And so the whole notion of holiness is how far away can I get 
But think about this. If that's the model of holiness, then Jesus was the most unholy person who ever walked the earth. Because he was known as a friend of sinners. Who are these people? He's eating with tax collectors and streetwalkers. Jesus was a friend of sinners. I'll go even farther than that. One time, Jesus was called a wine-bibber. Do you know what a wine-bibber is? That's New Testament language for a party animal. And, and I really mean this. If I don't know what all heaven is going to be like, but there is one question that I am dying to ask of Jesus and ask of some people who were unbelievers and were in his How could he be so holy, be so without sin, never compromise the message, and yet so many unbelieving people felt welcome in his presence? It's incredible. But that's what we've been called to be. Those types of people. The Holy Spirit is not a spirit of isolation. He's a spirit of insulation. We are not tainted by the sins of other people. Because I am sitting with someone who is a sinner, God does not look at me and say, you are a sinner because you're sitting with him. One of the most significant evangelistic conversations I ever had was at the corner of the full throttle bar in Sturgis, South Dakota. It burned down, but I'm serious. There's one of the firemen from Kalispell, Montana. He'd been a significant influence in our family when we lost our son. We went to Sturgis together, and he was sitting at the end of the bar just weeping. It's not fair. Why did this have to happen? I want to have kids. Is this the way that God's going to handle me? And right there, significant evangelistic conversation, that guy eventually became part of our congregation and gave his life to Jesus. We have to be okay around marginal people. Holiness is not separation from sinners. It's a separation from sin. Let, and, and what did Jesus say? Let them see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I mean, that speaks about being in proximity. So here's, here's a question I'd like to throw out to all of us this morning. Just for a moment, think back about this past week. How much of our time have we personally engaged in being with unbelieving people? This always gets me in trouble, but it's all right, because I answer to the Lord, nobody else. There are are some, and there may be some people in here, and you go to three Bible studies and six prayer meetings a week, you might want to adjust your schedule. Because I appreciate that passion. I believe God does too. But listen, there is a singular purpose that we were left on this earth. And it's not knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. You and I were left on this earth to be the body of Christ. And what was the mission statement of Jesus? I've come to seek and save that which is lost. We were not saved to worship. If we were, we'd all go to heaven 
at the moment of our salvation because the worship is perfect there. We were left here for one reason, and it's to be an influence, and it's to be a presence. It's to be salt and light to unbelieving people. So, three letters. I enjoy acronyms. If I fell down, passed out, went down here, what would happen? Somebody would come up. I hope. (laughs) Call his wife and call Bill Smith. Um, Somebody would come up and they'd check for a pulse. They'd put their head down. Do they hear any breaths? Do they feel any breath? Put their head on my chest. And let's say my heart stopped. What's going to happen? And do you, do you know the song for CPR? Staying alive. Ah, 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 ah. I'm serious. Okay? Because that's how you know exactly how fast to do it. CPR. If we want to influence the community, and I believe we do, three letters. We need to do CPR. Cultivate relationships. Plant the seed of Christ. And at some point in God's providence, when he brings it to pass, R, reap a response. And if they say no, we shouldn't feel guilty. Because God is the only one who can change and save a person's heart. We are not responsible for their response. We're responsible for cultivating the relationship, and we are responsible for planting the seed of Christ. And then God brings a harvest. CPR. Cultivate, plant, and reap. Who are these people? Christian church. They're your people. They're my people. They're Rockies people, Summit. There's Mountain View people. Park Fellowships people. They're the body of Christ people. God, help us. To be salt and light. Let's pray together. And just in the quietness of the the moment. And like all of us to examine our own hearts. Do, Do we have a burden for unbelieving people? Are we intentionally connecting with them? Do we see ourselves as salt and light? And that it's our responsibility as much as Aaron's or Zach's. Do 
Is there somebody, even right now as we're talking, and quiet before the Lord, is there some an unbelieving person that God is putting on your heart? Could we be challenged right now to pray this prayer? Lord, open up opportunities to be with Joe, to be with Mary. Can I ask you this question this morning? What, what is your passion? How has God wired you? What do you like to do? In that, how can you connect with unbelieving people? Because community transformation will never take place by government. It will never take place by good feelings. It will take place because the church is effectively reaching out and furthering the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And lastly, I would say this. Can I challenge you this morning? As you're sitting here, are you salt and light? Has the light of the world invaded your life? And if you're trusting anyone or anything or any ism other than Christ and Christ alone to be right with God, I'd invite you to surrender your life to Him. And ask Him to invade your life and to bring forgiveness that He promises that He will. And surrender the leadership of your life to Him. And confess that he is Lord. And the scripture says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you, Father, for time in your word. You've called us to be salt and light. It's what we are. Help us to take it seriously. I pray for my brothers and sisters, the Christian Church of Estes Park. Thank you for it for Aaron and Zach and the other people who lead. And I pray they'd be salt and light in our community as you show them how to do it. But God, help us to take this seriously. Eternity is at stake. We are perpetually in your service. We are in a loving covenant of obligation to you because of what you've done for us. Deliver us from hiding the light. Make us mindful, I pray, of Bishop Laud's comment that the holiest moment of any worship service is when the cathedral doors swing open and God's people go to the world. For your glory, give us that mindset. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.